One disclaimer to make. A couple of weeks ago, I told some of you men that if chiropractors would depend on me, they wouldn't be in business. Well, I guess my payday's coming. So if you see me leaning into the mic, it's not because I'm proving a point. It's probably because my back doesn't want to straighten up. So I believe I pulled a muscle. And I think we'll be okay. <clears throat> can turn to Judges 6. Our last quarter we went through Judges and we briefly touched on uh, Gideon's experience here in Judges 6. And that Sunday as I read through the lesson and the connecting verses, I made a mental note to come back and study this event and the things surrounding it a little more. Um, threshing barley in a wine press. His response to the angel. His response to God's request. And also his father's response to him destroying the idol of Baal and the, the grove there. <clears throat> I'm going to be jumping around a little bit, so I'm going to start with verse 1, Judges 6. And the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. The Lord delivered them into the hand of Midian seven years. And the hand of Midian prevailed against Israel. And because of the Midianites, the children of Israel made them the dens which are in the mountains and caves and strongholds. And so it was when Israel had sown that the Midianites came up and the Amalekites and the children of the east, even they came up against them. And they encamped against them and destroyed the increase of the earth till they come unto Gaza and left no sustenance for Israel, neither sheep nor ox nor ass. And they came up with their cattle in their tents and they came as grasshoppers for multitude. They both, they and their camels were without number and they entered into the land to destroy it. And Israel was greatly impoverished because of the Midianites. And the children of Israel cried unto the Lord. Down to verse 11. And there came an angel of the Lord and sat under an oak which was at Orphrah that pertaineth unto Joash, the Abbi Ezrite, and his son Gideon threshed wheat by the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared unto him and said unto him, The Lord is with thee, thou mighty man of valor. And Gideon said unto him, O my Lord, if the Lord be with us, why then is all this befallen us? And there, and where be all his miracles which our fathers told us of, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up, out, up from Egypt? But now the Lord hath forsaken us and delivered us unto the hands of the Midianites. And the Lord looked upon him and said, Go in this thy might, and thou shalt save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have not I sent thee? And he said unto him, O my Lord, wherewith shall I save Israel? Behold, the family, my family is poor in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said unto him, Surely I will be with thee, and thou shalt smite the Midianites as one man. And drop down to 25. And it came to pass the same night that the Lord said unto him, Take thy father's young bullock, even the seven, the second bullock of seven years old, and throw down the altar of Baal that thy father hath, and cut down the grove that is by it. And build an altar unto the Lord thy God on the top of this rock. And the order of place, and take the second bullock, and offer a burnt, off, burnt sacrifice with the wood of the grove which thou hast shalt cut down. 
Then Gideon took ten men of his servants and did as the Lord had said unto him. And so it was because he feared his father's household and the men of the city that he could not do it by day, and he did it by night. When the men of the city arose early in the morning, behold, the altar of Baal was cast down, and the grove was cut down that was by it, and the second bullock was offered upon the altar that was built. And they said one to another, Who hath done this thing? And when they inquired and asked, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, hath done this thing. Then the men of the city said unto Joash, Bring out thy son, that he may die, because he has cast down, cast down the altar of Baal, and because he has cut down the grove that was by it. And Joash said unto all that stood against him, Will you plead for Baal? Will you save him? He that will plead for him, let him be, be put to death whilst it is yet morning. If he be a god, let him plead for himself, because one hath cast down his altar. Therefore on that day he called him Jerebable, saying, Let Baal plead against him, because he hath thrown down his altar. And Dwight gave me a little warning of the extra time that was put in here, but I apologize, we may go into overtime a little bit this morning. This this took place about 250 years from the exodus uh, from Egypt and about 200 years from them entering into Canaan. And I was just struck by the that these people that experience such profound miracles could turn away from God and begin, begin worshiping a handmade idol. And this was not the end of the miracles. They experienced them as they, as they traveled into Canaan. What can be so strong that they forget or don't, they forget the, uh, what took place and they'll turn aside and worship something other than this God that was showing them all these, all these miracles. And I guess I had to be honest, if I think back 200, 250 years, there may have been plenty of things that would draw me closer to God that I had known nothing about. And there's a lot of time elapsed here. And they also did not have the Holy Spirit as we did. But there was some very dramatic things that happened that you would think would keep them in focus and worshiping this God that that brought them out of Egypt. But that's not God's message this morning. We may have to visit that some other time. Just with the thought of what today is pulling so strong that we would walk away from God and serve other gods. But what took me to this passage is what was different with Gideon that God chose him in this oppressive time. You know, he grew up on the same property, on his father's property that appeared to be the Baal worship center. And was Gideon taking part in this worship? Had he fallen into idolatry himself? And we don't really know that answer. It's possible. But there are some things that we do know about him. And our sermon title this morning is uh, Godly Convictions. 
as we as we look at this passage of, with Gideon and all that was happening around him at this at this time, he was we find him threshing barley, or I think it calls it wheat, in a wine press. <coughs> the uh, earlier verse, the first verses that I read there, the Midianites were oppressing the Israelites to the point that they were making holes in the mountains and hiding in caves to uh, to get away from them. And then they would come out in the seed time and plant their crop. And about the time of harvest, when the crop is ready to be brought in, the Midianites would swarm in and consume and take everything, the crop and the animals. Instead of a plague of grasshoppers, it was the plague of Midianites. It says they were as grasshoppers that covered the land. And we have have Gideon here as an example that he he did not go into hiding to the point that he did not uh, care about his family and those around him, but he went to extreme measures to uh, to continue uh, gathering that food in a way that maybe the Midianites wouldn't wouldn't find it, and it and it shows as a man of of integrity. You know, a wine press was a hole in the ground where they would dump the grapes. I don't really know how big it was, but then they would trample them or smash them so the juice would run from that hole into another uh, hole, which was a holding area where the juice was collected from that. And this is a, a huge difference from the threshing floor that was up on a hill, a flat area, in the uh, in the wind where they could put large uh, amounts of, uh, of barley and the oxen would would trample out the grain and the wind would help separate it. Gideon had enough room for him to be in that wine press and with a small amount of barley and beat it out on his own and then separate the grain from the chaff down in this hole. Um, it just shows that he was, he had the, we're, we're talking about conviction, but the, the integrity or the, the conviction to continue to work for his family and to feed them. He was willing to think outside of the box and, and to do something different. Ecclesiastes 11.4 in the Amplified Version says, He who observes the wind and waits for all conditions to be favorable will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. He was willing to look past um, the uh, oppression and, uh, and, and collect that food. <clears throat> In verse 12, we have his, have the angel coming to him, calling him a mighty man of valor, a brave man, a warrior, uh, one who overcame his fears and was able to step out in this difficult time and do what needed to be done. And the first thing, the next verse, verse 14, the first thing out of, out of Gideon's mouth, um, was, if this is true, then where is God? You know, 
if God is still with us, and we heard about all these miracles that our fathers told us, then why is this happening to us? And the angel, if you know, the angel does not even make a response to his question, but goes on to the next verse and says, Did I not send you? In verse 15, Gideon is still not convinced, but he continues to go on and, and talk about his family being the least, the least of the tribes, and he being the least in his family. And then verse 16, the Lord says, I will be with you. Verse 16, surely I will be with thee, and thou shalt smite Midianites as one man. Was it the physical strength that he had that would defeat the Midianites as one man? And I think we know that that is not what was going to defeat them. But it was the strength that, that God had found within him in the, in what he was doing, the way God found him threshing that barley. It gives us a, a picture of who, who Gideon may have been. Even though he had this idolatry, we don't actually know if he was involved with it or not. But there was something there that God saw he could, he could use. And I think we can say that that is why God chose him to do his work. <clears throat> his his response to the angel would seem to be a sense of conviction in his life. He brought up instantly brought up the miracles that he he had heard about. He had not forgotten about these things. In the verses I didn't read there, he had asked for a sign. And after the miracle of fire consuming the food he had made for the visitor, he knew that he had seen the Lord and he built an altar and sacrificed a goat. Even if before he had been taking part in idolatry, he was now convinced in his heart that that was wrong and he was convicted and he turned and he sacrificed there a goat to God. The one that he knew was true. So was he going to be able to stand? As we go down to the, the last portion that I have read there, right after the uh, the sign that he was given, uh, God put him to the test that very same day. If you are going to stand for me, I want you to take one of your father's bullocks and go down and tear tear down the altar of Baal and cut down the grove. Then not only that, I want you to use the wood to make a sacrifice and to use your father's bullock on that altar there. Now what was he going to do? You know, this appeared to be he was afraid of his family. He was afraid of the village there, the people. This was their their main worship area. And besides that, these bullocks were most likely raised to be sacrificed to Baal. It appears like his dad would have raised these animals for a sacrifice 
that was more important to him than feeding his family. These, these bullocks were raised to sacrifice on the altar of Baal. And he was apparently able to hide them from the Midianites until this time. But Gideon did what God asked him. He had uh, servants that stood with him. They went by night because he feared going in the day. And they they did exactly what, what God had asked them to do. And we'll come back to some of those verses later. What I want to bring out in this passage is uh, that con- convictions can come when we find ourselves in the middle of a situation as Gideon did. You know, God can work in our hearts at the right moment through the right circumstances that we make right choices in the face of temptations. And we we talked about that in our Sunday school this morning. But is this the safest way to build convictions? I want to look at two other young men that this would have been their way. They may have failed. This was their story. And you probably know where I'm going to turn. Let's go to Genesis 39. Read Genesis 39, 7 to 9. And it came to pass after these things that his master's wife cast her eyes upon Joseph, and she said, Lie with me. But he refused and said unto his master's wife, Behold, my master wotteth not what is with me in my in the house, and he hath committed all that he hath in my hand. There is none greater in this house than I, neither hath he kept back anything from me but thee, because thou art his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Joseph had to be one of the loneliest people that ever lived. And we all know the, the story well. He was kidnapped by his own brothers, sold into Egypt, bought by Potiphar, the government official there under Pharaoh. No family. None of his friends came with him that he would have grew up with. He was a slave in a foreign country with no idea what life lay ahead of him other than to serve this man that had bought him. Nothing else or was there. Look at the latter part of verse 9. How can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And we know the, the rest of those chapters beyond this where Potiphar's wife became more persistent to the point of grabbing him and he fearing for his own, that his own strength might fail him ran out of the house and cost him those few years in prison. How could Joseph stand alone, all alone, totally alone in a time like this? when he was maybe the loneliest person. How could Joseph be strong and victorious over this temptation? There's only one way, and that is he had made a commitment to God to stay pure, and he carried that as a personal conviction, and this was a line that he would not cross no matter what the circumstances. Sometime in the past, either through his parents or through his own relationship with God, he had resolved within himself 
that he would not sin against God in this way. Circumstances played no part in his choice to follow through with those convictions. He was solid. He had made that that choice beforehand. I can turn to Daniel 1. Daniel 1, 1 to 8. And in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, came Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, unto Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, unto his hand, and part of the vessels of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar, to the house of his God. And he brought the vessels into the treasure house of his God. And the king spake unto Ashpenaz, and master of his eunuchs, that he should bring certain of the children of Israel and of the king's seed and of the princes, children in which was no blemish, but well-favored and skillful in all wisdom and cunning and knowledge and understanding science, and such as had ability in them to stand in the king's palace, and whom they might teach the learning of the tongue of Chaldeans. And the king appointed them a daily provision of the king's meat and of the wine which he drank, so nourishing them three years, that at the end thereof they might stand before the king. Now among these were the children of Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, unto whom the prince of the eunuchs gave names, for he gave unto Daniel the name of Belteshazzar, and to Hananiah, Shadrach, and to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel, sorry, but Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with a portion of the king's meat, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore he requested of the prince of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. <coughs> there's a few new thoughts that stood out to me this time that I apparently never really registered before in these verses. And in verse 3, um, the king instructs Ashpenaz to bring home children that were from the royal blood, from the king's seed and of the princes. For some reason in my mind, I always pictured Daniel and his friends as uh, maybe from a peasant farm family. Or uh, It's very, very plain here, but for some reason I never really caught that before. But these were very likely descendants of King Hezekiah. And this was prophesied in 2 Kings, 2 Kings 20, 16 and 17. And Isaiah said unto Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord. Behold, the days come that all that is in thine house, and which thy fathers have laid up in store unto this day, shall be carried into Babylon. Nothing shall be left, saith the Lord, and of thy sons that shall issue from thee, which thou shalt beget, shall they take away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. So another prophecy fulfilled. In verse 4, these, uh, these young men that he was supposed to uh, bring back were young men that were being, being taught in, uh, in the Hebrew. And they were being prepared to step into the political world as well. And Nebuchadnezzar was a, was a wise man. He knew what age 
was the the right age to get these to bring these boys back in their tender age of youthful boyhood old enough to be separated from their parents but not so old that he wouldn't be able to indoctrinate them in the ways of his country and their king required these things they should, they should be noble birth they should be intelligent and learned and they should be strong and handsome in nature so they might do him better service How would he accomplish this? Verse 5, it says he started with food. He treated them as kings. He gave them the same wine that he drank. He gave them the same food that he ate. The goal was to treat them with royalty so that they would forget the things from their father's house and their religion. And these were the very things that they were being taught, preparing them for the political world in the in their nation. But one of the most important was that they forget the teachings of their parents. Then they would be useful to him. If you take them away from everything that's dear to them, eventually they will assimilate into his culture. few questions. Do you think the first time they sat down at the king's table, do you think they all partook of the, the food that was forbidden to them back home? That God had required them not to eat. Do you think they decided as a group in the same night that they were all going to begin eating these things that were forbidden? Or was it one at a time as they watched their friends eat and drink and have a good time that each one decided, what is the use? I was forced to come here, away from my family. What do these teachings mean to me now? Where's God now? What does it really matter if I do these things or not? But what was different with Daniel and his friends? And the key is in verse 8. He purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the king's meat. Sometime in his life, he was taught the commandments of God and what God required of his people. And he committed in his heart that this is where he was going to take a stand no matter what happened in his life. This could have been through his parents, it could have been through his schooling that he was receiving, or through his personal studies of God's laws. But whatever the case, however that took place, it became a personal conviction that he was going to keep no matter what happened, whether death, not even death, could change that. <clears throat> so we surprised after, after 10 days that they looked fairer and fatter than the others that were indulging into these other foods and this wine. You know, Daniel and his friends had a peace that they were that they were still doing what God had asked them to do. And they could face their studies, you know, with clear minds and a clear conscience. When their fellow fellow youth were living in sin, which brings guilt and unrest to their conscience. And how can you function in their full potential in these conditions. 
And what else was offered to these boys that we do not know about that pulled them farther and farther away from God and the things they were taught? And I think we, if we're all honest, we know what it is like to live with guilt. I know I do, and it, it takes the joy out of living. In Daniel 1.17, as these four children, God gave them knowledge and skill in all learning and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. God, God blessed him for his choice, for standing up by himself against these things. I could go on. Everyone else bowed down to the idol except Daniel's three friends. Did you ever consider that these same people that were around them that were bowing down were very likely from the same youth group that came came out of uh, from the Hebrew nation there when they were captured? Daniel 6, 3-5. Then this Daniel was preferred above the presidents and princes because of an excellent spirit was in him. And the king thought to set him over the whole realm. Then the presidents and princes sought to find occasion against Daniel concerning the kingdom. But they could find none occasion nor fault. For as much as he was faithful, neither was there any error or fault found in him. Then said these men, We shall not find any occasion against this Daniel except we find it against him concerning the law of his God. <clears throat> as a new thought to me as well, from another, another speaker, was the fact that some of the same men that were plotting in these verses to, to take Daniel's life could have very likely been the same boys from his own very own youth group that were captured at the same time that he was. When I when I heard that thought, it gave a whole new dimension to me of the story of Daniel. When you th- when you think of him standing, all these things that took place very likely could have been the uh, his very youth group, the ones that were surrounding him, that were uh, not able to stand. Dare to be a Daniel. Dare to stand alone. Dare to have a purpose firm. Dare to stand alone. And this could be in a godless society or could be among my friends. <clears throat> what does it mean to live with convictions? I have three definitions here I want to read that are not original with me. I thought I'd put it very well. The first one, put simply, conviction is a belief of which we are thoroughly convinced, and I don't mean that we merely believe that a given set of statements is true, but that we are convinced that these truths are essential and life-changing. We live out these truths and are willing to die for these truths. Why is conviction so important? Conviction allows individuals and teams to overcome obstacles when they arise because they have a strong belief in what they're doing, regardless of the struggles and the challenges faced along the way. Without this conviction, obstacles can quickly become permanent barriers to success. And maybe not written in a, in a spiritual way, but we could, we could take that as, it could also be an obstacle 
that were a permanent barrier to her, her spiritual success. What does it mean to stand strong in your convictions? If you have the courage of your convictions, you have the confidence to do what you believe is right, even though other people may not agree or approve. Some New Testament verses for Thessalonians 1.5. If our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost and in much assurance, which some transla- translations use conviction, and in much conviction, as you know what manner of men were among you for your sake. John 16, 7 and 8. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, that it is, it is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. And when he has come, he will reprove or convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. In Hebrews 11, 1. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence or conviction of things not seen. Who needs convictions? Children, you need convictions. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. You may not understand exactly why your parents tell you the things they do, what not to do or what to do. But you need to have that conviction within you to obey them because that is what God commanded. Youth. And I, I like talking to youth. You know, you all have so much energy, so much potential. You know, a lot of times we hear that you are the church of the future. But I want to suggest that you are having a big impact right now for the church of the future. Who are the younger children looking up to? Who are the ones going out and like you did yesterday and, and singing in Minneapolis, proclaiming God's word? Where do you get your convictions? You get it from parents, from others, your own personal studies. One thing to remember is your parents' convictions and teachings are not your own until you personally examine each thing and see the need to make it your own and that this is something worth standing for. Reminded me of a conversation I had with a man from another denomination that took a total stand against the Internet and we were talking on the job and was asking questions about safe use of internet and how filters work. And as we, as we talked, the illustration came out of, of these, like a filter, these things are, are a, are a fence that are around us. <clears throat> but that fence is only as good as what each, how each person respects it. It keeps you from innocently falling into something but it's not protect someone that wants to get around or over it. And as I was thinking of that, I think of your parents' teaching is a lot like this fence. 
And when you were small, the fence protects you from danger. But as you get older, you know, it's still there and it can help you. But that is not what's going to, that's going to make you able to stand when you face something. You need to make your parents' teachings your own convictions. If you look at Daniel and Joseph, this is the only way that they were able to stand alone in these circumstances. Writing on the convictions of others is also not a good idea. Number one, it'll take you on a roller coaster ride because convictions are not the same with every person. And number two, it'll let you down when you are alone and need it the most. You need to have your own convictions. Parents, and I'm not saying these things that have it all together, but I'm learning at the same time. Children need to see and know our convictions. We cannot expect them to learn them on their own. They can, but most of the, most of the time it'll be after making a mistake. I heard a man uh, teaching on child training, and he made this comment that every child is looking for boundaries. When a young child is told not to touch something, when he is disciplined and told not to do something, he may very go, very well go back to that very thing and act like he may touch it, but look at you to see what your response will be. And when he gets the same response, he feels a sense of security. He now knows what is expected of him and is a happier child because of that. If he receives mixed messages, it causes confusion. Boundaries create security in children. They know what is expected of them. Grandparents. Yeah, you're still an inspiration to those that are younger. Don't throw out your convictions just because there's no one in your home to teach anymore. You can still have a great impact in those that are following you, that are younger than you. And it's always been an inspiration to see older people hold their godly convictions. And it shows the rest of us that it is worth it all. What do godly convictions do? They keep us within the boundaries that God put in place for His bride, the church. They give you what you need at the very moment that you need it. And don't expect to find that conviction to stand on at the heat of the moment. Be like Daniel and resolve not to do these things before you face them. Godly convictions will defend themselves. There's normally not an argument needed. Let's go back to Gideon. After the people wanted to kill him for destroying Baal and the grove and offering that bullock, how did his father respond? He said, if, if Baal is really God, let him come and defend himself. 
Do you think he said this only to protect his son? Or was he dealing with guilt of knowing full well that he was sinning against God and that he personally was not able to defend Baal? And I think it's safe to say that all these people that came out knew they had no argument. God's truth convicts and brings change. What about Joseph? If he would have given to sin, would God's protecting hand been over him? Or would he have faced death rather than a few years in prison? It's very likely. What about Daniel? Had he eaten from the king's table that first time, would we have all these stories that we have from the book of Daniel? And him and his friends. <clears throat> Godly convictions inspire others. You know, older ones are encouraged and inspired by young ones that make good choices because of their personal convictions. It's a beautiful thing to witness when this happens. If on their own, they make godly choices. I may have shared this story before, but I'm going to share it again. When I was a teenager, a group of us friends went to the eastern shore and spent some time at a, a beach there. And later we went out to, uh, went into a theater. And every one of us bought a ticket and went in and sat down. We were not sitting there long when one of the boys got up and said he would meet us outside when it's over. It did not change what the rest of us did. But I remember very well the conversation that followed. Afterwards, we were talking. He said his dad had asked him not to go to places like that. And he had made a personal personal commitment that he would never do that. And at the heat of the moment, because he had made that commitment before in his heart, that he would not defile himself with going to a place like that, he was able to stand alone. Now all of us were going against our church guidelines. I'm sure most of us were going against our parents' teachings. But there was only one strong enough to stand. The rest of us, even though we knew what was asked of us, had never taken those convictions as our own, which made us weep. But the thing that I remember the most <clears throat> is there was not a single negative word spoken about this young man, but rather words of admiration for what he was able to do at that moment to keep his promise and to keep himself, his convictions, and himself pure at that moment. Lastly, godly convictions will allow you to live in peace and with a sense of security that no matter what you face, whether alone or with friends, you have a God that will never let you fall if you are willing to stand for him.